Hello, and uh, welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show. Uh, my name is Bill Graff. I am one of the producers of the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show. And I uh, want to wish you all a happy July 4th. Kurt is taking a little time off for the holiday. So for this week's show, we are going to show you a conversation between him and Hall of Fame writer uh, Peter Gammons. Uh, we pick this part of the conversation up with Kurt talking about the influx of Latino baseball players into Major League Baseball and the effect that it had on him. Enjoy the show. Um, I went to Mexico to play winter ball. I went to the Dominican Republic to play winter ball. Um, I got a taste of the other side. Being in a country where you don't speak the language, uh, and, and, and especially uh, we're prideful men. We don't want to be embarrassed. I mean, nobody does, but for the most part, we're – we're usually at the head of the line and, 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 and people are recognizing it. We don't want to embarrass ourselves. It's no different for them. And it, it, I think it speaks volumes that there are organizations who have led the charge. Guys like Theo Epstein, who was so far ahead of his time, who said, you know what? We owe it to these young Latin players to start educating them when they come here in the English language. They don't have to, they don't have to interview in English if they don't want to. But it doesn't do us any good not to have them comfortable in an environment they're going to be in every single day of the year. And especially the guy, you know, you look at Soto and Machado, uh, Machado and guys like that, who, who uh, I don't know. It's one of my regrets. I can tell you that one of the things, very few regrets in life is that I didn't learn Spanish immediately before I started playing baseball. I didn't take it in high school because I think it would have made a tremendous impact on me because of it. It commands respect with the Latin players. When you take their language, same thing. I learned some Japanese when Daisuke came over. Um, and, and the media was like blown away when I answered a couple questions in Japanese. But it, it, I got to learn. It was a respect thing. You, you you care enough about your teammates and you respect them enough to at least try and create an accepting and warm culture. And, and that teams have gone out of their way now to make sure these – because I try to explain to people, Pete, people don't understand – yeah, a guy like Yasiel Puig, he's in Cuba on Sunday living in a dirt hut, even though he's a phenomenal star for the Cuban team. And on Monday, he's got $55 million in the bank and he's in Hollywood. Human beings are conditioned to adjust to that. And it's not fair to expect them to. And, and not only is he in L.A. Monday in Hollywood, Pete, he's being held to the same standard that white players and other players that know the language are being held to. Yes. Oh, d definitely. I, I thought one thing that... that I, I really respect what Alex Cora did with uh, Yoshida coming over. Yep. I mean, he came over a little bit early, and they had a Super Bowl. He, he uh, uh, Alex and Kike Hernandez had a Super Bowl party, and it, they had him over, and they had all the Puerto Rican food, and, and they all uh, – Alex has spent a great deal of time communicating with him. And one of the players said to me, it's amazing. They can talk to each other. One talk, can talk Japanese and the other can talk Spanish or English. But somehow they've spent so much time together, they can, they can communicate without the language in its entirety. And it's, it's it takes time. Right. It's something, but, I mean, it's also, Alex said to me, well, that's part of my job. Right. To get the most well, out of the people that I have with me, no matter I what their backgrounds. I and won't be able to. I won't be able to convey this to people, and and I, it's something that you know. Uh, I'm going to put the Houston Astros stuff aside. Um, 
Alex Cora is one of the best baseball people I've ever known. Um, and I, Alex Cora, I always tell people, you know, they talk about the, 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 the Houston cheating incident and all the things that go with that. Alex Cora and Craig Council were the two best players I ever played with on the bench at doing the extra thing. Spotting a pitcher, tipping his pitches, seeing a hitter doing things. They had baseball IQ that was through the roof, which is part of the reason why their careers were as long as they were. Uh, even though they were never everyday players in the in the in the truest sense of the word, their value to the club was far beyond what they did while they were on the field, and they were very good players at what they did as well. But but I loved I loved that that baseball IQ and and Alex. And Craig, but uh, Craig was a little more surprising because Craig was an introvert. He wasn't a big talker when he played, um, but he has the perfect mentality to manage and an extreme baseball IQ. And I always said that about Alex was one of those guys you could see it. He just had he had it all. That the the bilingual thing is, and, and people don't understand that's not a small thing. That is not a small thing. American managers that speak Spanish are in my opinion, way up the scale on a respect thing when it comes to the Latin players. Because that's, again, you care enough about me to try and make me feel like part of the team. And guys kill for that. Oh, yes. Well, it was one of the things I thought that made Felipe Alou such an important oh. figure in baseball history. Not only was he a great player, and he was a, one of the real giants of the early days of the Union. Yes, which is really important to have a an early Latin American player absolutely be very active in the union. By the way, he had to manage during the strike with the replacement players. I had, I was with him a lot in that spring training. He was one of the most miserable people for that yeah. time I've ever because it, he was being forced to do something right. that was completely against his it, what he believed in. But, Shame on the owners for forcing them to do that too. By the uh, way, well. That that was not exactly a successful idea. No, no, no. But but I also argue, Pete, that that 1994 Expos team was the most talented team I've ever seen that didn't win a World Series. Oh, I wow. They were, and they were. The thing that killed me was that it it really killed baseball in Montreal because they were drawing when they yes. swept the Braves and a couple of other series and um, at the end of July and early August. I mean, they were drawing 37, 38,000 people. That was such an insanely talented team and deep. And, and I mean, my God, they were – and they were poised. I don't know how they would have handled payroll, but they were poised to be special for an extended period of time. And and that was – I mean, I'm glad because I was in Philadelphia at the time and they were a nightmare to play against. But, but uh, the amount of players that went on to be in special in other teams was unfortunate. Let me let me ask you about that too. I'm a firm believer. I don't believe Florida can support baseball. I, I I've said from the beginning. I think the populations of Arizona and Florida are transient in nature. Everybody that moves to Arizona or goes to Florida brings their team with them. You know, when bought, you know, and when we go to Tampa as the Red Sox, there were more Red Sox fans by a factor of 10 than there were Tampa fans. But the transient nature of the population, I just don't believe they're going to be able to support a team in a meaningful way. Now, you can beat Tampa and scrape every penny and dime and dollar, and what they've done I think is amazing, um, and get by with a minimal payroll, but you're going to have to be lucky every year like Billy Bean was in Oakland. I, I, I don't think that that's good for baseball, number one. But – but you saw the A's are going to Vegas, and and you know, 
while I hate the his, I hate the fact that a, a team so rich in history, because I grew up in the seventies and the Oakland A's were, they were it in the early seventies uh, with Billy oh. Martin managing Langford and McCaddy and Norris. And they were just ridiculous, but the city of Oakland has gone is, is, is in a bad way. I love Vegas, what it's doing, uh, what it's done. Although I think we're talking about, there's a hypocritical argument to be made about baseball, gambling, Pete Rose and Vegas getting baseball team and a, and a hockey team. But that's another discussion. Florida's teams. Do you think both of those teams can survive? And if not, which one move? I think which one moves first, and where do you think is the next city to get a team? If they if they relocate, what do you think? Who do you think would get a team? I think Nashville. There you go. There's a lot of money in Nashville. I know that the, there was a little downslide in the uh, around 2018, 19 in the economy, but it's coming back, and they, they, it's a very diverse economy. It's a great baseball town, and um. The college baseball has been huge. Minor yep. league baseball has been huge. I mean, I can remember seeing Nashville play when Don Mattingly and William McGee were uh, yep. playing for them. So, yeah, I, I, back. I live 30 minutes south of Nashville now. And so uh, I agree. I think it's a phenomenal. First of all, it's a, I think what the Nashville Predators done in the NHL is the, is the blueprint for how you wake up and embed a community into your team and your franchise. And these are some amazing fans. Baseball is a big deal here. Um, and I think, well, all over the the the, the southern uh, the Bible Belt, baseball is a big deal. Um, and I think I think Nashville would absolutely thrive. Plus, don't they have they have Dave Stewart on that on that team of people trying to bring a franchise here? Uh, and that guy, to me, is, well, he was as money as it gets in the postseason. Uh, but I think he's he's a guy that that could help lead. So, hey, Pete, I want to close out. I want to ask you something, and this is a question you don't have to answer it. Uh, I want a civil discussion on it, but I'm curious. You and I are on opposite sides of the of the political spectrum, but Which we come good. from. A we, we, we want we want society to have opposite right ideas. Right, but 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 you you and I come from the day when I was growing up, where where Democrats were left of center, Republicans were right of center, and there was a center, and you could meet in the middle on most things, and you disagreed on some things, but you could have a civil conversation. We're no longer there, um, and, and that's why these conversations are sometimes a challenge. The, the, the whole spiel around the Dodgers and what they did with Pride Night canceling, bringing it back. I, I just I want to ask you a, a, kind of a 30,000 foot question. What, what do you think about that whole thing? I, I think they started. They jumped out. For. Reasons they were trying to be very good. They, they there were issues with it that they felt they couldn't overcome. Um I just thought that they have to eat it and, and let it go. I mean, it's, right. it's whichever side. Somebody said, "Well, there was nobody there." Well, I had huge attendance, but they didn't have the huge attendance because there were fans were lashing out at the Dodgers or whatever. It's they worry too much. I mean, they right. the Red Sox had a pitcher that they signed to a minor league contract. Yep. They didn't realize that he had written some offensive uh, tweets. When he was thirteen, and it be it became a, a a major source of embarrassment right. in Boston, and I don't know. I, I think well, that they I, should I, have listen, known I, about I don't it. Want, I, I don't want you to go at like I was just curious about your 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 thoughts topically. Um, I, I say this too, and I I'm wondering if you believe this as well. I I've always told fans 
the only thing owners hate worse than losing money is bad press. And 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 there is no upside. And I listen, I understand it's California and, and they're very progressive and liberal and 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 pride night this and whatever, but but you have a product you don't need to oversell in LA. That's a franchise people are gonna come watch. The other stuff, the inclusive stuff, you know what? I don't know many fans, uh, if any, that go to the baseball game to have their uh, lifestyle choices a uh, uh, pride night. You know, I get, I get, bring your pet to the park night. Everybody loves dogs, but but this stuff to me, that's not what the the game. I don't go, and I never felt people didn't come to uh, to a game to hear uh, Kurt Schilling's opinion of the presidential race. You know, they, first of all, they didn't care. And secondly, the amount of money these families are paying for the experience these days is is dramatic and impactful. Give them the the product sells itself. We don't have. I mean, as cool as the Savannah Bananas are, Major League Baseball sells itself because you'll never see it done faster, stronger, uh, more intense, and more athletically than you will in the big leagues. That's the product sells itself. It always has. Um, and so, uh, one last question. I was mad. Baseball has always been the only professional sport without a clock. Now, I think that the timelessness of it to me is the magic. Um, I was mad with the pitch clock. I said with the pitch clock, Kirk Gibson's moment doesn't happen. Joe Carter's moment doesn't happen. And you can start listing off these because it's, I can remember the Vince Scully dragging the Gibson at bat out and the vo I can hear him calling that. And it felt like a 10-minute experience. Well, there were about 15 pitch clock violations all throughout that at bat, if, if you're talking about it. But like the wild card, I was wrong in the sense that games are now like 30 to 40 minutes faster. I don't know if that's making more people go to the game, but I know the intent behind the rule worked. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I, I think it's generally worked pretty well. I do worry... Uh, about pitchers, some pitchers who are who didn't do it in the minor leagues and are very nervous about it, almost becoming like rapid fire, like you just yeah. you're at the, you're at a carnival and you're firing at Koopy dolls or something. Yeah, I, I mean, I worry about them hurting themselves, trying to work too fast and and too rapid fire. I, I mean, never thought about that. I honestly, Pete, I didn't think about that when it happened because I never. I would have never had a pitch clock by LSU for the most part because I got the ball back and I threw. I would have been Max Scherzer in spring training. If you watch Max, you know, he tested the clock, tried to figure out how he could manipulate it, tried to figure out how he could implement and use it as a strategy. I like that. I would have approached that. But as a young player, man, I remember I just, I just wanted to get an out. Now I've got to worry about a ball or a balk or, or you know, that, that, that added an element. I didn't think about that when it first started, but absolutely I think that's a part of it. And I also think, you know who would have been hurt by it, even though he worked quickly, was Greg Maddox. I remember Absolutely. doing a piece on on him and how his catcher, he didn't give – he gave the – Kurt gave uh, – I mean, excuse me, Greg gave the signs. Right. But um, he wanted the catcher to get it back to him in two seconds. He wanted to control the pace of the game. But he used to say to me, what was really important was knowing when to then – go around the back, fill around with a rosin bag, walk around the mound a little bit, and then just screw up the hitter's timing and make them mad. Well, what's he doing now? 
and then come back and we go back to it again. Yeah. And he was the master of uh, of the uh, of almost like being an orchestra leader. Well, temp- I I understood early on from guys like Maddox Tempo was part of my my arsenal. I could I could I could work as fast or as slow as I needed to. And again, I worked pretty rapidly, but I knew and and in my notebook I had it specific hitters that that like to draw and it bat out. Those are the guys I would push and I would be on the mound ready to throw. And they, you know, I would be in the, they'd call time. Those are the guys who I wanted to mess with their tempo. And then the guys who would try to play me out, I just knew, hey, this is bat's going to take a longer, take a breath and work it. And I, I specifically called out those guys for myself because I knew, and you know this as well, there were umpires who did not like specific hitters. And I knew that when I had that umpire and that hitter, that my strike zone went from 17 to maybe 25 inches. And, and, you know, before Questec and, and and all the other stuff, I can manipulate that and use that. And that, to me, was an advantage in tempo. But now everybody's tempo is the same. Everybody's tempo happens within 20 seconds. And and the point you made, I never thought about the cardio conditioning of having to throw every 20 seconds. I usually did anyway, which is why it's funny, because when I see highlights of myself, I'll see myself breathing heavily like I'm 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 I'm. Running in a sense, it was because of my pace. Other guys, like you said, they work through the minor leagues and they're doing, you know, well, now that the pitch clock has come on and the minor leagues has helped, but they come up through the minor leagues with 30, 45 seconds between pitches. Now they're in the big leagues in the most stressful environment of their life and they got to do it in half the time. I don't know how that works. You know, something you said, which I think it speaks very highly of baseball and why the game itself will supersede a lot of um, adjudication and so forth. You think about umpire, there were guys that umpires didn't like. Well, two of the most uh, tempestuous personalities and great hitters in the history of the game were Ted Williams and Barry Bonds. And I do believe they're right there at the top of most walks in yep. baseball history. Yep. So it well, didn't the, matter if the umpires not- liked them or not. The other one was for me was Paul O'Neill. Paul, uh, I and I I loved competing against Paul O'Neill. Uh, I, I it, every bat, at bat was an experience, but I don't know that he in his entire career I don't think Paul O'Neill ever took a strike. I think if he thought he if he took it, it was absolutely a ball. But it, that that and that was one of those guys too. But yeah, so listen, Pete, uh, absolutely a pleasure. I can't thank you enough for for taking the time out. I know I took more of your time than I probably should have, but no, that's fine. And, and I just. I sometimes, and you'll hear from me about this, but I think it's fascinating the war between the theories of swing and miss and the 98 mile an hour fastball and the ability to get outs before you need the swings and misses from the bullpen in the, in the eighth and ninth innings. Command, it's, it's what George Kirby of, of the Mariners, who's one of my favorite pitchers, says C and C, command. And control. Yeah. And I mean, I just I remember oh. talking to you about it, talking yep. to Buck Showalter about it, how you would just throw nothing but fastballs until the seventh inning. Of course, you had six different fastballs, right. so it, it, well, it was a little different than some guys. I it, it, I've always taught command and control. Control is the ability to throw strikes. For the most part, everybody in the big leagues can do that. Command is the ability to manipulate the ball in four and six inch increments around the strike zone. Because that 95 under your armpits in the upper right corner of the strike zone is a completely different pitch than the 95 on the black down and away. And so you know, I understood 
like, and, and I studied Maddox. I studied everything about this guy. And I studied and talked to all of them. And I understood the fastball when I was right was six pitches. Wasn't one. I can remember looking up in a game. I'll never forget it. I was in pitching against the Giants in Philly. And I was in the fifth inning or sixth inning. And I had 54 pitches. And I had not thrown a breaking ball. And we were winning two to nothing. And I looked over at Dutch and I said, hey, maybe we should mix in a breaking ball. And he grabbed me by the top of the head and he spun my head towards the scoreboard. He goes, that'll tell you when you freaking throw a breaking ball. Otherwise, you just <laughs> do what I tell you to do. <laughs> Pete, hey, listen, God bless you, my friend. It's great to catch up. You stay safe, stay healthy. And hopefully we can catch up again down the road, buddy. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Bert. Take care, Peter. Okay. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly did. Um, Anytime you get a chance to talk to somebody who's been around the game, and he is a lifer, like I said. He, he's been around the game since long before I was born uh, and long after I retired. And uh, always great to hear and tell stories of people like that. So thanks again to Pete and uh, to Cal for making that happen. <laughs>